So as Jason said, uh, I work down at UVA, but I've been working on a project over the last uh, four years now um, called the Thriving Cities Project. And uh, I want to say a few words about where, um, where this project came from, what it's trying to do, and how it might be of interest uh, to you all. Uh, so first, I want to kind of go back in time a little bit. This is a, this is a Vocare group about vocation, right, and the common good. Um, and just say a few quick words about my, my background and some of, the, some of the vocational questions that sort of got me on this path, all right? Because they're important. So I'm a Gen Xer. Uh, I grew up in the, came of age in the 80s and 90s during the high point of the, of the so-called culture wars, right? Uh, and came to faith in, in, that, in those decades tr and in trying to sort of figure out what did, what is, what's the appropriate expression of our faith in, in this kind of a moment and being dissatisfied, like many, with what seemed to be the kind of duality between, uh, that was sort of rooted in the, in the culture wars, spent a lot of my, a lot of my uh, early adult years um, on a kind of personal quest. And of course, I wouldn't have known then that that's what I was doing, but I just found myself always dissatisfied with sort of pat answers on either the left or the right or this or that and the other thing. Um, and, but always admiring people who seem to have these convictions that seem so clear and so, um, so obviously, you know, on one side of the culture war or the other. I was one of these, these people who thought, yeah, it's a little more complicated than that though, right? Um, I can kind of see some good points on both sides of a lot of these issues and still trying to figure out what my faith required in, in these sorts of moments. And, it all came to a head for me. I worked in D.C. during welfare reform, and this was one of those moments where you saw this playing out in policy in pretty dramatic ways. Long story short, having this sort of, this sort of uh, irritation, trying to figure these things out, I decided before I go get a real job, I'm going to go to graduate school because I want to try to figure some of this out for myself. Ended up going down to the University of Virginia, studied with a guy who I think has spoken here a number of times, who well, I've been here when he has, James Davison Hunter. Uh, and that led me to, uh, to what I'm doing today. But in the middle of that, the theme that kept coming up over and over again as a kind of master theme uh, is one that you'll be familiar with, which is to say that whatever else our appropriate posture in the world is, there's this Old, old Testament word that keeps coming up a lot that seems to have something to do with it called shalom. All right? How many of you have heard the word shalom before, right? It's kind of all over the place now. It actually wasn't all over the place back then. Um, so as I'm doing my graduate work, as I'm doing various things, this word shalom is kind of constantly coming up and piquing my interest over and over and over again. And uh, eventually, my scholarship and this concept sort of met each other, all right? And that's where Thriving Cities was born. So had I had a, a pre it's not even, it's cooler than a PowerPoint, it's a Prezi. How many of you have ever seen a Prezi presentation? It makes you a little motion, if you're motion sickness at all, if you're susceptible to motion sickness, I've probably done you a favor by not showing it, but it's kind of cool you kind of glide in and out of these things. So anyway, imagine up here, uh, we'll be talking about shalom and, and what shalom is, because it's an ideal that gets used a lot. It's a word that gets thrown up a lot as we're the church, we're for the shalom of our communities. But what I began to see is that even though we have this as, a, as an important term for us, uh, it turns out that its meanings uh, are often thicker and richer than we're often led to believe. 
So if I was to go around, and we don't have tons of time, so I won't do this, but if we had a lot of time, and I was to ask you, what does shalom mean? My guess is most of you might say something like, peace, well-being, right? Uh, maybe something like wholeness, right? These kinds of words. It's often used as a greeting, in fact, today, if you go to Israel or right, speak Hebrew, it's often used as a kind of greeting or, or like we say hello or like peace be with you when we exchange peace at the, uh, um, in, the church, in your church service. Um, but it has these dimensions to it as you begin to kind of delve into it. It has these dimensions to it. And so um, I believe actually uh, one, of the, one of the guys who I've learned a lot about this term from, I think has spoken here, a guy named Nicholas Wolterstorff, all right? And Nick Walterstorff has a great way of thinking about shalom where he says, look, shalom is really, is, is about peace, but it's about right relatedness first, it's about right relatedness. So it's about our right relations between myself and, and God, myself and my neighbor, and myself and the world. It has a kind of Trinitarian aspect to it, all right? But it's about relatedness, and it's about wholeness in those relationships. So that's a key dimension um, about how we should understand what shalom is. And there's another element, which is where uh, I'm going to come back to you in a second. I'm gonna, uh, so I'll mention it now, and I'll come back to it later, which has to do with the fact that the, the shape of shalom uh, is an embodied one. It's something that isn't just an idea or a value that we have in our head. It is a relay of w way of relating to others, but that way in which we relate to others actually takes place in, or takes shape in actual places, in our communities, in our homes, right? Um, wherever we happen to live and, 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 and exist. So there's a, there's a dimension of, of how we think about shalom, and, I, and I'll call it the ecology of shalom. And so I'll come back to this in a bit. So enough on biblical theology, as much as I dabble in it, but I wanted you to understand that there is this sort of ongoing question I've had of what does this word mean, and what does it require of us as God's people in the world um, to be in right relationship with, with him, with, with, with others, with our neighbor, and with our creation. What does that require? Okay, well now, step over to the sociological side of my brain. Um, we have these, you know, not that these are uh, like some different voices. They are different voices in my head, but um, different ways of thinking about who we are and what we do and our vocations. And so I'm trained as a sociologist. And so then the next question is, great, all right, so if shalom is the goal, what are the cultural and social conditions that we actually live in right now that might shape the possibilities for how we would express shalom in the world? What are the, what are the, what are the social conditions that surround us right now in the late modern world that actually um, make certain ways of, of living out shalom either easier or more difficult? Or what does our moment require of us? Now, let me be a little bit more concrete. So I gave a talk here, actually, in this room uh, a couple years ago where I talked about some of the challenges, and you might also think of them as opportunities for the church, under the conditions of late modernity. And late modernity is kind of this big sort of phrase. All we really mean is our moment and the particulars of our moment. So you think about, we live in a time right now, right, of great um, demographic shift. So how many of you know that by 2030, uh, the United States, the cities, all, most cities in the United States of America will be majority minority. Huge demographic shifts are taking place right now. All right? We all know, despite, well, this could give it a different, different meaning, technological disruption right, is playing havoc on our political economy, on our, the nature of work today. Right? It's also playing havoc on my ability to show you my Prezi. Um, 
So technical, we're, we're living in the midst of incredible technological disruption for better and worse. Think about Uber, think about Airbnb, think about, you, you name it, you can fill in the blanks. So I could go down a list of these like, great challenges of our moment. This is what we mean by late modernity. And underneath, there are great cultural challenges and opportunities um, that, are, that are there. But the thing that I began to realize, that if I'm interested in this question of shalom, which, by the way, had I had my prezi, I would have reminded myself to say that a great word, a great way of thinking about shalom, a word that can capture, I think, its multiple meanings and dimensions, is human flourishing or thriving, rather than just peace. All right, and I can, we can have another, maybe in question and answer, we can talk about that. So, so if we're interested in the question of human flourishing and thriving today, I became very interested in, well, what are the main conditions, right, that, that make that possible or not? And what I began to realize is, is that um, one of the big challenges of our moment is actually increasingly ground zero for answering this question. And that's the question of the city, of urbanization. So many of you will know that we now live in a world in which the human species is now majority urban. First time in our history, uh, we surpassed majority urban. Um, by t again, by about, mid, uh, about 2050, if demographic projections stay this way, um, we'll be about 75% um, an urban species. Which means that for the bulk of humans that exist now, for your kids and your grandchildren, if you're interested in the question of human flourishing or thriving, this is a fundamentally an urban question today. All right? So this got me thinking, okay, well, if this is the case, then how would we think about trying to operationalize shalom in not just in the fact of urbanization, but more specifically in the context of the particular kinds of cities that are coming into being and that we'll be leaving to future generations? Right? Cities at different moments in history have looked very different. A city in Athens, classical Greece, looked different than a city in medieval Europe that looked different than an industrial city in, in England that looks different than a 21st city, smart city or something like that, or New York City today. So what kinds of cities? So we need to understand the nature of the cities we're inheriting and the cities we're creating. All right? And then say, what does shalom look like? What does flourishing or human thriving look like? And how would we begin to get grasp on of this word um, in ways that might be useful. So that's then set us into the creation of this thing called the Thriving Cities Project, all right? So we set out to figure out ways of, um, ways of making uh, human thriving or flourishing or shalom um, tangible, practical. How do, we, how do we actually do this? Because that seemed to be the big question. It's one thing to aspire to this biblical notion. It's one thing to have an understanding of how our moment is setting the terms by which most humans will flourish or not. It's a whole nother thing to say, well, as, as a Christian, as a scholar and so forth, how would we go in and, um, and make this, con this notion concrete in ways that are responding in a creative uh, way, in a way that is consistent with what Shalom demands of us in this moment? That's a different question, so how do we do that? All right. So now I'm gonna shift from the kind of big gauged questions and backdrop to the Thriving Cities Project to the project itself. And I'm gonna say a little bit about, a little more about the theory behind the project and then how it's actually working out in practice. All right? So to the theory. So that, that set me down a trail with some other colleagues to do a lot of reading and thinking, a lot of water uh, under that bridge. Um, some of it uh, would, would bore you to tears, but what I stumbled upon 
is a concept that we call the human ecology of our communities, which is to say that for a long time, we've approached our communities in silos, all right? If you're in education, you think about your community mainly in terms of the problems of education. If you're in public health, you generally think about your community mainly in terms of public health. If you're in business, right, you mainly think about your community in terms of the problems and challenges of business and so on. And what I began to realize, and a lot of research suggests, and what we all know intuitively, these things are all interconnected. All right? These things are all interconnected. All right? Just like that rela the relationality of shalom suggests we are, in fact. We are all interconnected in these different ways. And the question is, okay, then how do we begin to isolate the points of connection and which connections matter most, right? And this led to the creation of what we call a human ecology framework. It's an ecology. It's a, it's a web of interconnections, all right? And we broke that uh, for, we needed some handles on it. And so we broke that ecology down into what we call six community endowments. And I'll say something about the word uh, endowment in a second. And some of these will be familiar to you, these endowments. And these, are, these endowments are realms of, of human activity that any community at any scale has. All right? There's going to be things about the arts and beauty. These are going to be activities that produce commerce and prosperity and wealth. These are going to be activities that produce justice and civic order. These are going to be activities that produce uh, public health, right? the health of our physical bodies and the health of our natural environment. These are going to be activities that produce knowledge. right? And they're going to be activities that produce character, that form us as humans in, in, in virtue and in, um, uh, and in our, our kind of ethical dispositions. Right? So what do we call these? These six, these, these are fundamental. These are the building blocks in our, in our view as we look through research and we, and we also look back through the, the, the history of the great moral, philosophical, and religious traditions. We see these everywhere. And so these are the building blocks of thriving in any community. So we call them the true, the good, and the beautiful. This should be fairly uh, well known. So the true is that endowment that, that, uh, that encapsulates the practices and institutions and resources that go to knowledge production and education in a community. The good, again, is that, is that endowment, that realm of human activity in a community that is given over to uh, ethical and moral formation and its expression, say, through philanthropy and volunteering and through a range of activities. Right? We call the, 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 the endowment of the beautiful uh, that realm of human activity that gives, that gives expression through aesthetics and creativity and the arts. All right? The, and then we, and those are the kind of classical, by the way, the classical, uh, the true, the good, and beautiful. Some of you may be familiar with the kind of classical endowments. But there are modern, three modern endowments. The prosperous, which should be pretty self-explanatory, right? That realm of human activity and resources given over to the production of, of, of wealth and its, its distribution and its, and its cultivation and so on. Um, and then we, we talk about the just and well-ordered, which is the, the, that uh, realm of human activity given over to to the, the exercise of citizenship and to, and, to, and to political governance and to civic order, all right? And then finally, we call the last one the sustainable, which is, which is basically that realm of human activity given over to the, to the, um, to the, the, the nurturing of our, of our individual physical health and the health of our wider environment. So these, again, these six endowments uh, make up this human ecology framework for us. Um, and uh, each one, you can, the reason why we call them an endowment is because there's a temporal dimension to them as well. We all know this in any city, any community, there's a history there, 
right? And we see that history, those legacies at play, at work, in the shape of, of the built environment, in the, in the social relations, in the economic relations, right? There's a temporal reality. These things have certain lives, certain um, uh, over time. And like an endowment, these have to be cultivated. They have to be invested in. They have to be stewarded, right? There's, there's notions of fiduciary obligation. But each of these areas of human activity, they build up over time, and they produce the wealth that is the community's wealth, the commonwealth in an older parlance, um, that is necessary for the flourishing of that community and its members. So that's the basic framework, and we can get into more in this in the, in the question and answer. But I want to move now a little bit to um, how we think this works and then how this cashes out into practice. Um, so basically, the insight here, um, some of you may not, you don't know me, so you don't know where I'm from. I was actually born in New York, um, but I was raised in Montana. I was raised not very far from a place called Yellowstone National Park. I was actually lived closer to Glacier, which is, you should all see Glacier. But Yellowstone became very interesting to me because of a controversy that came up in the, in the late 80s and all through the 90s, which was the reintroduction of the wolves. All right? Some of you may know this story. And when I was coming up, it was always presented in the press as environmentalist tree hugger, want to bring back the wolves, and then the cattle, cattle ranchers, conservatives that didn't want the, their cattle to be eaten by the darn wolves, the pesky pests, right? Uh, but I didn't understand at the time that there was actually really good reasons for why we wanted to re reintroduce the wolves. And if I had, if our technology was working, I'd show you a lovely video that would make the point better than I can. But since it's not, here's what happened. They eradicated the wolves over 75 years ago in Yellowstone Park. No wolves, gone. And then marched forward 75 years. And what began to happen in the late 80s is that the scientists that studied the different aspects of the ecology of the ecosystem of Yellowstone Park began to realize that the different dis dis disparate and distinct aspects of the park that they studied were all out of whack. So this all became famous around the disappearance of aspen groves. So Yellowstone used to have aspen groves spread out through the entire ecosystem of, of the park, and they began to dis disappear at an alarming rate. And so as they began to sort of like, what's going on? They began to talk to people who do uh, uh, aquatic, the health of the aquatic, uh, the streams and the fish and the aquatic life. And they began to realize that the, the trout populations were, were undulating in, in really radical uh, you know, ways and so on. And they began to see that each of these things is kind of a cascading set of effects. And each of these were somehow related to the one before it and the one after it. And they traced all of these cascading chain, chain effects all the way back to what? the disappearance of the wolves, and here's how. When the wolves went away, and they almost hunted the grizzly bears to extinction as well, the main predator for the elk and deer populations were, went away. The elk and deer populations boomed over the years, and in particularly, their habits, their grazing habits began to change because they were no longer afraid of predators. So they began to spend lots of time down along the banks of rivers, and guess what elk love? the bark of aspen trees. So they went on an eating binge, and they started eating the aspen groves faster than they could reproduce. Well, guess what aspen grow on the side of riverbanks? Guess what the roots of the aspen trees do? They keep the soil from eroding into the rivers and the aquatic, the, the, the aquatic ecosystems and the streams, and literally the whole structure of the streams themselves began to, to meander more and have more blockages, and various kinds of things were now disconnected from other things. And on and on it went. And they realized that by pulling out what they call a keystone species in an ecosystem, 
right? A particular species, they call it a keystone, like a keystone in an arch, because when you remove that, the thing collapses. Not every species plays that role, by the way, all right? You can remove a crow and a raven comes in and fills it just fine. System stays the same. But some species have this, this role. Think about coral in marine environments or the honeybee. Imagine what happens when the honeybee goes away, all right? So certain species play this role in keeping the system healthy. And so they reintroduce the wolves, and guess what? They've come back with a vengeance. The, the biodiversity of the, eco, the park and the larger ecosystem is, in fact, come back with such uh, um, force that it's actually now pushing out beyond the boundaries of the ecosystem into the populated areas for creating new problems, <laughs> yet, a, yet a new system. All right, what's my point? My point is, is that that's how human ecologies work as well. And the point is, is using, like for us, trying to figure out ways to use our framework, our six endowments, and looking at the interconnections between each of those endowments, we're trying to identify those places where there are keystone variables in the human ecology, all right? And if we can identify what some of those are, then we have the ability to sort of say, okay, what seems to have the greatest disproportionate impact on the health and well-being of our communities? So that's what we set out to do. Um, and we're still very much on the journey, by the way. But as we began to go into, um, I'm skipping over some things for time, so I want to move to the practice part of this. So as, um, as you know, we're in the ivory tower, but we spent the la a lot of the last four years going back and forth between the academy and into cities. So I have spent as much time, uh, to the chagrin of my scholarship, uh, um, sitting down talking to philanthropists and community organizers and people that work in uh, incubators and you know, tech hubs and mayor's offices and so on and so forth. Because what I've been trying to do is to say, what is it about this framework that we've created that might be able to bring a thick, interrelated understanding of thriving, okay, and for me personally, shalom, in, in ways that can meet actual felt needs in communities? And so I'll just talk about two things that we've done uh, that move this theory to practice. The first thing I heard over and over again, it didn't matter who I was speaking to, was, you know the, you know the, the, um, the uh, line from Jerry Maguire, show me the money, all right? Change money to data. And this is what everybody tells me, show me the data. Everybody has a data problem. Everybody, I don't care who you are, whether you're the soup, local soup kitchen or the opera or a tech startup, if you're writing a strategic plan, you're talking to your board of directors, you're writing a grant application, everybody wants to see the performance metrics, the, in, the, right, the outcome indicators, and so on. And most people are like, oh, great, maybe that's just one more thing I now need to do. Some people are excited about it. Certainly the funders think this is gonna create greater responsibility and fiduciary, you know, stringency to the, to the process, um, but everybody's overwhelmed. Right? We live in an information age, but everybody's overwhelmed with the, the, the information. How do we discern what information to pay attention to, which, out, which indicators, which data? Because you can find data for anything you want, it seems. So we heard three things over and over again. One is please help us discern what data to pay attention to and why. And second, it turns out that a lot of things that really matter, we don't, actually, we, can't, we don't know how to get the data for that, despite there being an avalanche of data out there. Either because it's, you can't quantify it, or we don't know how to quantify it, or maybe it shouldn't be quantified, or because it's proprietary. Google, Google owns all that data, and we can't get access to it. So that's the second thing we've heard. And then the third thing we've heard is that 
look, we can get a bunch of data, but if we're trying to actually change people's behavior and change their minds, we also have to change their hearts. And to do that, you can't just throw up a, a data point or a statistic on a slide. Somehow these need to be, we need to tell stories that capture people's imaginations, that change their hearts. Um, how do we do that? So those were three concrete felt need problems that we, we heard over and over and over again. So then we set out to say, okay, what can our framework and the research that we're doing, how can it be marshaled and applied to these three specific problems, all right? And so at the end of the day, what we've done is over the last uh, three years, just in this one area of need, we have gone out and we've created a, a, a database of about 4,000 indicators that communities use all across the United States and around the world to measure some aspect of human well-being or thriving along all the six endowments of our human ecology model. So we now have this database. We now know what everybody's using to measure this. And then the next thing we did is said, okay, which of these indicators, these data points, actually has a strong research base behind it? All right? Because um, that's an important question. Just because they're popular doesn't actually mean they're well supported. So how many of you in this room think that vitamin C is good for curing the common cold? How many of you have been told that? Let's, let's ask that question. Okay, everybody has. It turns out that the evidence isn't so strong for that. All right? But everybody thinks it is. And if you do Google searches, that's going to be one of the most popular things that comes up. Now, let me, let me use a more specific to our case example. Third grade reading. How many of you have heard that third grade reading is a crucial indicator of future educational attainment? Only a couple. All right. Well, if you read the New York Times, this comes up all the time. All right? Jeffrey Canada. Where's Jeffrey? Where are we near the Children Harlem Zone? Uh, kids zone up, up the road here? All right? It's all premised on this kind of thinking. How many of you also heard that third grade reading is a very strong predictor for incarceration rates? Okay? It's very popular now. All right? Well, if you actually go look at what the literature and the, and the research says, there's actually pretty good support for educational attainment later on. It's correl highly correlated. And they're even now finding that you push back to kindergarten, uh, that it stays, it stays the same. And there's a real, really sad and, and uh, depressing moment between kindergarten and third grade. But when it comes to the incarceration rates, it turns out that that is much less well supported and the evidence is much less clear. And yet, people are c commonly using this. So what, our, what we've done is we've created, an, I wish I could show you, uh, an online, very interactive tool that helps you go on and see the 300 leading indicators that communities are using across the six endowments around the country. And then you can go on and it will show you the size of the bubble, right, is the size of popularity, okay? And then you can see how much research support it has, right? And then you can see, right, what you might want to pay attention to. And then you can click on it and then a back of a baseball card opens up and it says, like, this is what it's used for. This is where you find this information. These are caveats about if you're going to use this, this is how you should think about using it. And then we have links to the leading studies that are out there. If you're really wonky and nerdy and you want to go all the way down, you can do that. And then eventually what we're going to have is two other pieces, which I'm pretty excited, three other pieces which I'm excited about. One, we're doing a ton of research now uh, on the connections between these indicators. So what are the important up, upstream inputs and what are the important downstream outputs? so that you know what the research suggests. If you're interested in third grade reading, what needs to be happening upstream to get you there, all right? Well, at least what does the research suggest? 
And so we'll, we'll, we'll have these pathways that you can follow on this indicator explorer tool. The other thing is, all right, you've decided third grade reading is good for educational attainment. Now the question is, what does that look like in my community? So you'll be able to click on a button and a GIS, you'll put in, punch in your, your, your zip code uh, and a GIS map comes up and now you see the geographic distribution in your community. What does that mean? Case in point, in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, if you look at average or mean data, okay, averages, you would see that Charlottesville has a very high education, third grade reading level. But if you disaggregate that average and you look at certain neighborhoods, what you'd find is certain neighborhoods are horrible and certain neighborhoods are good, right, on this score. Right, you can't just take averages. This is why data can be so misleading on so many levels. So this allows you now to say, okay, it's good overall, but, but it's being skewed in these areas, and I'm gonna pay attention to what's happening in these neighborhoods and communities. Last thing, and, I'll, and I'm gonna be quiet. Uh, we're using this data, we're using this as our point of entry into felt needs to bring this, 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 this thicker picture of what we think human thriving is in our communities. And we're doing a number of things beyond just the data points that I've mentioned. Uh, we're doing a lot of storytelling with case study work and multimedia documentary work. We're doing work uh, around where we actually walk with groups in communities. We walk them through what we call a Know Thy City curriculum, which helps them learn the skill set and the virtues, quite frankly, when they want to go help their neighbors. It turns out that that is a much more complicated uh, endeavor uh, than just having the desire and the passion and identifying some need. People skip right from the, I've got a passion and a calling and there's a need, so I'm gonna go do it. There's a bunch of steps in between. Uh, so we help lead people down that, that path. Uh, it's a discernment and formation uh, path. And, um, and then we're also doing a lot where we're working with cities that are doing what they call city alignment work. So right now a lot of cities at a, at a cross sector level are trying to figure out how do we get philanthropy and business and education and government and so forth to work together towards a common set of ends. And so we're doing this in a number of cities. So we're working in 10 cities right now uh, doing this work. And um, I'll stop there. <laughs>